Good morning, 180. Uh, turn in your Bible to the book of Philemon. Turn in your Bible to the book of Philemon. And this morning, we want to look at verses 8 through 18. A short letter, and this is the second to last of our sermons in it. And I hope that through this letter you find great encouragement, even as we continue through this understanding of forgiveness, as Paul writes to the man Philemon in the church of Colossae. We begin in verse 8 this morning. Read with me, it says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you, God, for the encouragement that we find in it. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the love that Christ has shown us that then gives us the grace and love to bear with one another. We pray that in this we would find words that charge us and help us and exhort us to be more like Jesus. Nothing is more like our Savior and that we would forgive one another. Help us to be committed to that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a painting I want to talk to you about. And I know what you're thinking. I don't care about paintings. Neither do I. I just had to start with something. So, there's a painting I want to talk to you about. And maybe, have you heard of a painter by the name of Rembrandt? You know Rembrandt? Raise your hand if you've heard of Rembrandt. Okay. All right, so we've got, we've got some people who know what I'm talking about. And if you know who Rembrandt is, you understand that he was pretty good. Rembrandt has, I think, is attested to have made over 300 paintings over his lifetime. And those are, um, those are very expensive, if you know anything about his work. Anywhere from 900 grand to upwards of $100 million dollars is the cost to buy one of his paintings. And one of the most famous of his works is called The Night Watch. It's called The Night Watch. And it's only called that because it has this dark setting to it, which wasn't meant to be nighttime. It was meant to help preserve the painting. It was added to this painting in order to try to keep it from being damaged and keep it from being harmed. 
dumb people do dumb things. And so he foresaw that that could happen one day. And though he, uh, he painted this painting in the, seven, in the 17th century, uh, we wait till 1975 for a man by the name of Tim Brenner, oh, sorry, William, uh, to come in and finally do what was long awaited to happen to his great work. This man came to the museum where the painting was being held one day and was turned away uh, because he was acting a little bit different. He was being a little unruly. And so this man comes back, and uh, when he comes back, he brings with him a bread knife, and he begins to chop at the painting left and right, leaving zigzags all over it, and as you can imagine, ruining this fine and expensive piece of art. I know what you're thinking. If this was your painting, you would throw it out. But that's not what the museum did. I would presume you know that. You wouldn't just take something of such value, and even though it's been damaged, you wouldn't just take it and throw it away. Instead, the museum puts together a team of people who can now work on the painting and restore the painting and try to bring it back to being what it once was. And so they did. And restored once more, the painting was brought back to its almost original state and looked exactly like it once did. And now they put it behind a glass wall so that no one could get to it. And it's worth a million dollars, at least it was when they finished it. And now they're saying it might be worth even more. That's what you do with things that you value. Something that's valuable, if it's tarnished or tampered with, or if it's messed with, or if it's damaged in any way, if it's valuable to you, you'll seek to restore it. And I think there's something to be said for humanity when a painting that's worth millions of dollars because a really cool guy worked really hard on it, those things, we we give them more effort in restoring them than we do the people around us whom we have relationships with. It's something to be said about humanity when there's so much effort put into restoring a painting, even if it's a Rembrandt. And there's so little effort put into restoring the friendships with the people around us when damage is caused to those relationships. But we do put effort into restoring the things that we find value in. And if that's true of a painting, I hope it's all the more, much more true for you of your relationships in life. And I hope it's even more true of you and your relationships with one another as God's people. That if you've claimed to know Christ and if you've claimed to know the love of Christ and if you claim to live in the love of Christ, that that would be priceless to you. That what Christ is doing in the life of his church, what he's doing amongst the people of God, when, when he says that the person sitting to your left or your right, right now, if you claim to be a believer, is your brother or sister in Christ, that that would be invaluable to you. And so if anything were to step into that and damage that or tarnish that or change that or alter that, that you would seek to restore that. I hope that you value the people that you have the relationships that God has given you in such a way that if they were to be messed with, you would fight to make those things right. You would put effort into making sure that those relationships are restored. Paul meets us with that same kind of 
tenacity for relationships in this letter. This issue that Paul finds between Onesimus and Philemon, it's, it's not just a little thing that you can brush off. It's a big deal to Paul. And in Paul's letter, Paul is writing to this man Philemon, and he wants him not only to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome him as a brother. He wants this relationship that really in all, in all settings, it would be said Onesimus is the one that's, that's ruined it. Onesimus is the one that's damaged it. Onesimus is the one that's broken it. And now Paul comes to Philemon and says, and you fix it. You put it back together. Make it work. Bring it back, not to simply what it once was. Make it even better than it was before. That's the true heart of a believing Christian. That's the true desire of a believing Christian. It is not only to see relationships restored, but relationships be better than they ever were. To forgive people on a scale that says, I've forgotten all those things and now I'm working to making our relationship something it never was. Something much more intact than it ever was. Something much more united than it ever was. Why? Because this is the work of Christ in his people. This is what Jesus is doing in the lives of his people. Christ has done a work that not only brings us into perfect union and harmony with God, but he's done a work that now brings us into union and harmony with one another. You can turn back with me to the book of Colossians. I think you would remember that we read these words in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3, verse 5, the church was exhorted. The church was admonished to put to death that which was earthly in them. And stretching down to verse 12, then they are told to put on those things that God would desire for them. Holiness and, and, and compassion for one another. Kindness and humility and meekness and patience. They're told to bear with one another. And even if they have a complaint with one another, they're supposed to forgive each other. Why? Colossians 3.14, because above all these, we're to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It could be said that in a letter like Philemon, where Paul is making such an emphasis on forgiveness, it should be recognized that forgiveness will get you nowhere if forgiveness isn't motivated by love. Forgiveness that isn't rooted in love is of zero value. And so what Paul is calling Philemon to is not a simple forgetfulness. It's not some worldly kind of way of saying, you know what, I'm not even going to bother with this anymore. I'm done. I'm not going to put any effort into this. In fact, I'm just going to act like it never happened. That is not Paul's point to Philemon. Paul's point to him is put on love and now deal with this in a way that you can make this relationship better than it's ever been. I wonder if that's how you think of forgiving others. Is forgiveness something to you that's cheap it's just the forgetfulness it's something that you can just put issues on the back burner you never actually have to deal with them 
Is forgiveness something that doesn't come quite often in your life? It's not something you're willing to give. Is forgiveness something that's difficult for you? Because instead of forgiving, you'd rather do something about it. If someone's offended you, you'd rather take matters into your own hands. I know how to deal with this. I'm going to make this right my own way. I'll pay this person back for what they've done for me. If this is the way that you're thinking, the issue with you is you don't understand love. And Paul wants to orient Philemon's heart around that kind of love, which will teach him and remind him exactly why it's so important for him to forgive. And not only so, but that love that Paul calls Philemon to, that love that Paul and Christ call each and every one of us to, is a love that will give us the right actions, the right steps that we need to take when forgiving others. And we're going to see three of those in the letter this morning. We'll begin in verse 8, and throughout the letter we're going to see this. Number one, love receives the sinner. Love receives the sinner. Number two, love restores the sinner. Love restores the sinner. And number three, love repairs the sinner's damage. Love repairs the sinner's damage. We'll begin this morning in verse 8. Accordingly, Paul writes, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. That first word is important for us accordingly because it connects everything we're about to see to everything we've already seen. And so it's a reminder to us that in the same way that Philemon is to forgive in light of who he is in Jesus, verses 4 through 7, so it is true of us. You forgive in accordance with who you are in Christ, accordingly. Paul is saying, what I'm going to appeal to you, what I'm going to ask of you, that the thing that I'm going to try to get you to do, it's not, it's not separate to who you already are. This is something that falls in line with who Jesus has made you to be a man of great love, a man of great faith, a man who belongs to God's people, and a man who's a blessing to God's people. Because those things are true, I know I can ask this of you. And if those things are true of you, then the same kind of forgiveness Philemon is called to, you are expected to live up to as well. If you claim to be a Christian, you're capable of forgiving on the same kind of level. So accordingly, Paul makes his appeal. And it's a beautiful way in which Paul does this. There's no other place in the Bible that really mimics anything like this. Something so personal and pastoral. Look at what he says. Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. There's a difference between when your mom or dad has to tell you to clean your room and to when you just do it. There's a difference to when 
mom or dad has been telling you over and over and over to go clean your room and you finally do it. And that day where you just understanding what to do and you understanding your relationship with your parents and you because you love them and don't want to burden them and don't want to be someone who's not a blessing, you just do those things in love. There's something similar to what Paul is saying to Philemon here. Paul could absolutely tell him what to do. In fact, the rest of your New Testament, Paul's letters, is Paul telling people what to do. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus. And so in his other letters, Paul uses that as a means of saying, I have a unique and special relationship with God, one that's different because I've seen the Lord Jesus and I've been commissioned by him to tell you what to do. And Paul doesn't appeal to that here. Paul doesn't make use of that here. And though he could tell Philemon, you must forgive Onesimus, instead he does this. Because of love's sake, he's going to appeal to him. He's going to make an appeal. He's going to ask him to do something instead of tell him to do something. This is a relationship that has grown to the point that Paul can come alongside this man, trusting the kind of person that he is, and he knows, I don't have to tell him to do much. He'll do it even if I ask. And because this relationship that Paul and Philemon have is rooted on the love of Christ, Paul knows that Philemon is the kind of Christian that'll do what Jesus wants him to do, no matter who else is telling him to do it. Philemon doesn't need Paul to tell him what he needs to do. He just needs to be reminded and asked. There's something that's actually really important in that for us. None of you, and I remember myself, especially at your stage, love to be told what to do. And yet, that's exactly how life works. From the day that you're born, someone's coaching you along and telling you, do this, do that, do this, do that. But I think you'll notice that as you grow and mature, that'll change. And the expectation will grow less and less on telling you what to do and instead expecting you to do the right thing. I hope that you get to a place in your Christian life and your Christian maturity where you have to be told less and you can be asked more. A mature Christian is someone who we don't always have to tell them what they need to do. A mature Christian is someone who's so rooted in Jesus, so in love with Christ, so understanding of who Jesus is, so enamored with the loveliness of Christ, so enamored with the law of Christ, so enraptured with the love of Christ that no one has to tell them to do what Jesus would want them to do. They do it because they love him. That's Paul's appeal here. The reason he isn't going to tell them and the reason he's going to ask him is because of love's sake. This is the way of love. Love seeks to trust others to do what is right. And you should be at a place and you should be getting to a place where your maturity is taking you into a direction where you can be trusted to do what's right instead of having to be told to do what's right where you love God's word so much that we recognize and see it working itself out in your life day in and day out. Where we can be of encouragement to one another. That's Paul's 
heart towards Philemon. He has such a trust in him, such a trust in his faith, such a trust in his walk with Christ, that instead of telling him what to do, he's going to ask him. And what is it that he asks? Well, he's asking that he would receive Onesimus, that he would receive this sinner. And this is our first point. We see the appeal in verse 10. Paul, an old man, now a, a prisoner for the Lord Jesus, one who's endured much for Christ, one who, who's even put up with many others for the sake of Christ, now he calls Philemon to receive back Onesimus. I appeal to you, verse 10, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything that wouldn't have your consent in order that your goodness might be not under compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul is sending Onesimus back, and his first request is that he would be received by Philemon. Philemon, as I send him back to you, would you just take him in? Accept him. Welcome him. Bring him back. Allow him to be a part of your family again. Open the doors and make sure he feels like he's home again. And this would be really difficult for Philemon. Onesimus hurt him badly. And we've talked about this. Philemon has probably endured economic hardship due to Onesimus running away. Philemon's budget hasn't been the same since Onesimus ran out of town. Apparently, Onesimus has done something, and we see this in verses 17 and 18, uh, that has wronged Philemon. It's possible he stole something from Philemon. It's not just the labor that he's not there to commit to. There's something that he's done in particular to hurt Philemon. And now Philemon's being called to just welcome this guy back. Under what terms should Philemon do that? How is Philemon just supposed to bring this guy back in? The reason is because Onesimus is a new person. Onesimus isn't the guy that he once was when he left town. Onesimus is a new creation. In fact, we see that here, especially in verse 11 on this play on words that's being done. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. The irony is that his name, Onesimus, means useful. So useful in his past life, when he lived in his home, was useless. He had nothing to offer. He was a bad worker. He was a bad member of society. He was even a wicked member of society. He caused harm and hurt. He did nothing. And to make matters worse, he ran away. What a beautiful play on words where now Onesimus runs away from home, somehow finds himself with Paul, comes to know the gospel of Jesus, is saved from his sin, is restored with Christ, is now sent back to Philemon, and now can live up to his name. He comes back more useful than he's ever been. Onesimus has had a change of heart. 
And because of that, Onesimus' life is no longer what it once was. And so now he is truly useful, not only to Paul, but even more so now to Philemon than he ever was before. So much so that Paul equates the entrance of Onesimus back in Colossae as if though Paul himself were going back. Receive him almost as if you were receiving me. You see that in verse 12, don't you? I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul is basically saying, in sending you Onesimus, it's like I'm sending a part of myself. It's like you're welcoming me through your doors. And this is what forgiveness truly looks like. You receive someone back, not on the terms of who they were when they offended you, but now in the terms of what that forgiveness affords them in Jesus. Especially when they come back with a broken contrition and a desire to seek that forgiveness. We know Onesimus is committed to that because he goes home. Paul seemingly would have told him, you need to go back and you need to make things right with Philemon. And it seems like he does that. He comes back home. He seeks that forgiveness. And where that forgiveness is sought, that forgiveness ought to be given. I wonder if this is true of you. When someone approaches you seeking to be forgiven, are you willing to do that? Is it something that because of the understanding that you have of what Jesus has done for you, sins that you have incurred against the God of the universe, sins that have offended him much more than anyone could ever offend you, those sins God has forgiven when you cried out for mercy and grace, would you be the kind of person that when someone comes seeking your forgiveness, that you would forgive that freely? Would you receive a sinner the way that Paul calls Philemon to do so? To do so would be an act of one's own will because one's own will is now walking in the will of Christ. And I love how Paul puts that for us here. The reason he can send Onesimus with with such a trust in the, the work of Philemon to forgive him. The reason he can send him back and call Philemon to do this and not tell him to but ask him to. You see it in verse 13 and 14. He would have loved to keep Onesimus with himself because Onesimus apparently became useful to him in gospel ministry. But instead, he didn't want to do anything that he didn't get Philemon's permission on. And even as he sends him back, he he doesn't just want permission to keep Onesimus. It doesn't seem like that's his desire. It seems like his desire is really for him to go back home and to be back with Philemon. And he wants all of this to happen by the goodness that is in Philemon's heart, verse 14. Not one that's working out of compulsion, but of his own accord. Isn't that an awesome truth? That Philemon doesn't have to be strong-armed into forgiving Onesimus. But Philemon is moved to do it because Philemon has understood and experienced the forgiveness of Christ. That is Paul's great appeal. If this is for love's sake, as Paul says in verse 8 and 9, then the most loveliest thing that Paul can point to, 
that Paul can imagine, that Paul can call Philemon to, the reason that this wouldn't be by compulsion, but this would be out of Philemon's own desire, would be because Philemon has also experienced this kind of love. I don't have to tell you to do this. You'll do it because you want to. And you'll want to because you've experienced it in Jesus. And Paul alludes to this as he points us to our second point here. He wants this man to be restored as a sinner. He doesn't want him to simply be received as a sinner. He wants him to be restored as a sinner. Look at verse 15. For this perhaps is why he's parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul desires for Philemon to welcome Onesimus back with open arms. Paul desires that Philemon would do this out of the the new nature of his heart, one that's been forgiven in Jesus. And because of that, it isn't just that he wants him to open the doors to Onesimus. It's that when Onesimus walks through the doors, he would look at him differently. He would think of him differently. He would treat him differently. He would regard him differently. No longer simply as a bondservant. He wouldn't see him how everyone else sees him. He would see him now as Christ sees him. Everyone else looking at Onesimus would say, do you guys know who that is? That's the guy who ran away from town. That's the guy, that's the runaway slave. They might execute him. They might harm him. They might punish him. In fact, it's not just that they might, but they should. That guy's going to get what's coming to him. I I can't wait to see what Philemon's going to do. Philemon owes him a huge one right now. Onesimus has really got it in for himself. That's not how Paul calls Philemon to receive this person back. When Onesimus walks back through the doors, it's with nothing owed to him but to be welcomed in as a brother. He's no longer viewed as a bondservant. Instead, he's he's viewed as a beloved brother. And it's interesting that Paul, he notes this sense of almost the exact same way that Joseph endured his own trial and slavery and his own ascension into being a great man in Egypt. Really difficult to understand in the moment, but at the end of it, he understood the things that are often meant for evil, God means them for good. Seems like Paul has a little bit of that theology going on here in verse 15. Maybe this is why he went away for a little bit, so that you could win him back forever. Onesimus, this bondservant who had run away and had caused much harm to Philemon, his family, the church in Colossae. This man comes back, and the interesting thing is Paul doesn't just point to the fact that he's going to be a a Christian and a good member of society and a, a good brother to have around. This is a brother he'll have his whole life. And even thereafter, this is one man who Philemon gets to enjoy fellowship with in the present, but also a man that Philemon will enjoy eternal fellowship with in the future. 
This is just how different Onesimus has returned to home. And Paul calls him to receive him in that way. Not in terms of who he once was. And not in the terms of what everyone around him expects him to do to this once runaway slave. But in terms of who this man now was in Jesus. A brother. When you forgive someone... It should be by means of wanting to receive them and to restore them. To view them differently than you did before. Forgiveness is cheap where life is forgotten. Forgiveness is rich when you win back a brother. Forgiveness is valuable when what you have now is better than what you've ever had before. The reason it's so hard to forgive is some of us are so undesiring of having a relationship with that person anymore. You just can't get past how hurt you are. You just can't get past how offended you are. You just can't get past the way that person's treated you. You just can't get past the way that you think of that person. And Christ calls you to no longer regard them in that way, but now as a brother or sister in Christ to welcome them back, recognizing that in Jesus, everything now is better off. Is that how you think of forgiveness? What gets in the way of you forgiving in this way? What gets in the way of you forgiving in the same way that Christ has forgiven you? Once a slave to sin, now a brother to Christ. If Jesus has done that work for you, what would keep you from doing that for others? If Christ could take someone like you or me, who has never earned or deserved his forgiveness or his love, and he could take us and remove us from the sin that once stained us and kept us from relationship with him, to now make us co-heirs with him, brothers with him, in perfect union with him, if God could do that for us, what would keep you from restoring relationships with one another? Don't let pride and selfishness get in the way of doing what is right for you in the Lord. This call to Philemon, it's one that Paul doesn't have to tell him, he gets to ask him. And the reason is because Paul recognizes Philemon will restore this man as a brother because this man loves the Lord Jesus. Restore the sinner. Finally, we see here, someone does have to make payment for all this. Someone has to repair the damage the sinner has done. And so forgiveness, it isn't cheap. Restoration, it isn't cheap. And so we have a beautiful picture that's given us here in verses 17 and 18 that I think would do us well to understand quickly. Philemon is called to receive Onesimus. He's called to restore him as a brother. And lastly here, we recognize that someone has to repair the damage. Look at verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything charge that to my account he finishes in verse 19 that thought i paul write this with my own hand i will repay it isn't that interesting 
the consequences for when we offend one another, the consequences for when we do damage to one another, those things aren't easy to get rid of. Those things can do damage that's almost irreparable. Those offenses that happen and those hurts that happen when you talk behind one another's back, when you lie about one another, when you hurt one another in conversation, when you do something that's uncharitable or unloving to one another, when you steal unwrongly from one another, when you, when you abuse one another's friendship, those things, you recognize how difficult that can be to put back together. And Paul recognizes that Onesimus running away has come at a great cost to Philemon. And so what does he do about it? How are we supposed to make that right? Onesimus has nothing to offer. He's a runaway slave. He's got no money to his name. He's got no reputation. He's, not, he's got no means by making this right. So Paul says, if anything's been wronged of you, if you've lost out on anything, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge that to my account. Where have you seen something like that before? Where have you seen it before that the person who's wronged someone else has had their sins and their damage and their consequences taken out on another person. I think you recognize that what Paul is doing here is being nothing more than like Jesus unto Philemon. Paul says, I recognize that much damage has been done to you. I recognize that you've been hurt. I recognize that you are probably owed a lot. And if anything has been Cause in that way unto you, charge it to me. In the same way that for every sinner that has sinned against a holy God, and in the same way that every single one of us in this room that has offended God, defied his law, rejected his commandments, disowned his love, unappreciated his grace, Jesus says, take their sins and accredit it to me. And then you can give them my righteousness. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul steps into the scene and says, if anything's owed to you because of him, if he's hurt you in a way that he can't pay up for, give it to me. I'll do it. I'll pay it. I'll take care of it. And Paul, in doing so, reminds us of the beauty of the gospel. Forgiveness comes because someone has paid for all the wrongs that we've done. Paul recognizes this and he steps into the scene to say someone has to repay the damage. Uh, I'll do it. And in that, he reminds us of the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus has taken on our sin, taken on our debt, and he's canceled it by way of his death and resurrection. He's done away with all the things that you've done to hurt God, offend God, displease God. If anyone is deserving of feeling offended, it should be God. God has been sinned against day after day, minute after minute, hour after hour. God has had a people who he's made reject him time after time. If anyone in the world is offended, it's God. But if God can offer forgiveness through his son, how much more shouldn't you offer forgiveness to one another? If a God who would have been right to judge us 
and to send each and every one of us to a life separated from his love, a life that we deserve in hell, if that God could also send us his son to take care of our debt, and you say that you know that love, how much more should you not now be one who forgives like him? To do so would be to be the kind of person who receives those who wrong you and restores them and is also willing to take whatever that cost might be that comes from restoring that relationship. Because in doing so, you are more like Christ than any other way. If you call yourself a Christian, if you say that you know the love of Christ, that I would implore you, Paul would implore you, make yourself right with one another. And in order to do so, walk in love. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your truth. Help us to be the kind of people that forgive mightily because we have been forgiven richly. We thank you, Christ, for the forgiveness that you've offered us in your cross. We thank you for the fact that our sins have been paid for and atoned for. And now we too can walk in that kind of way with one another. One who doesn't seek to forgive can't say that they've experienced the kind of forgiveness that Jesus gives because Jesus forgives everything. If there's anyone in here still holding on to a grudge with someone else, still being bitter towards someone else for something they've done, someone offended by another person in this room, help them to forgive. Whether it be in in this room or in our families or with our friends, help us to be the kind of people who are given to forgiving often because we have been forgiven so much. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.